Welcome to Thirst for Knowledge Cast, a Magic the Gathering podcast that covers the eternal grind. I'm your host, Steve Hendrickson, and unfortunately, my exalted companion, Lawrence Harmon, has abruptly decayed with life stuff. We are going to discuss our tournament preparation methods as we have several big legacy events on the horizon. Fortunately for you, listeners, we have found a gracious guest to fill in for Lawrence. He won GP C-Tech in 2015 and has had two other GP Top 8s. We just took down the MTGO Legacy Format Playoff. I would like to welcome Jarvis Shu. Hey, what's up? Hold on, my friend. Doing well. It's a you know a calm Tuesday night. It's a very very calm. It's late, but I like it. So, how was your weekend? Uh, it's pretty good. Yeah. I played uh, two tournaments. I actually played a tournament on Saturday. Didn't do great. Uh, it was a modern tournament. I played the Urza. Uh, War of Invention deck, but on Sunday I played a Magic Online tournament. I actually normally don't play those that often because I have a computer job at work. So the idea of sitting at a computer for like eight hours on the weekends not a, that appealing to me. But I decided to play the Legacy Playoff on a whim, and I did extremely well. In fact, people can argue that I could not do any better. What does that mean? I was the victor of the tournament. Ah, oh, crushed. What was your uh... You know, um, what was your deck choice? Uh, so there's there's been a lot of uh, Rug Delver variants running around, but uh, basically took a list that Max Gilmore and Lawrence Harmon have been working on a bit. I sort of put a slightly Jarvis spin on it by looking at other Rug lists that have been doing well and specific card choices and seeing what I liked and didn't like and basically just, you know, sort of modified it to be my own and played it. Okay, I mean that makes that makes sense with your history. I remember a Grixis Delver deck with uh, Painful Truth and Snapcaster Mage that was uh, your your ba- your brainchild for a while. Yeah, those those cards were generally only in the sideboard, but it, I do similar sort of things with this deck as well. Okay, uh, so well, what was the you know what was the difference between your rug list and say like our classic? Eiffel Mongoose list from years past. So I think the issue with those cards now more than ever is the prevalence of modern Horizon cards has sort of made that strategy not so good anymore, in my opinion. Uh, the, the, the major problem, I think, is Renin 6. And the other major problem is the, pro, the rise of like Chalice-based and Prison-based and combo I don't know. There's just a lot of problems with playing a conditional card like Stifle, and Nimble Mongoose has not aged particularly well, I think. I agree, unfortunately. I mean, I love the Goose is Loose and all that nonsense, but uh, unfortunately, I think it's very loose to play the Goose now, is what the the correct phrase is. Yeah, Uh, you know what they say, Nimble Mongoose is faster than the Cobra's Bite, and Hex Drinker is a snake, so they're, they're not really friends. True, true. So Hex Drinker, uh, uh, and you played this card in your list. Yeah, so a lot of things about the particular list I played are based around the idea of diminishing returns of cards. Hex Drinker has the biggest diminishing returns when you put a second one into your deck, because drawing the second one is really not very good most of the time. Um, I just wait to play the first one usually as a four-drop, because once it gets to level 3, it has protection from Bolt, Plow, Fatal Push. 
the, the trick is you just don't generally play it into open mana if you can avoid it. I can definitely, I can definitely see it, and I mean, I, I do believe that uh, multiples would be a pr problem for your deck or for Rug because of the mana issues. You guys don't have a lot of mana usually left around. Well, so the, the weird thing is, I think Ren essentially gives you all of the mana you will ever need, but at some point you actually do run out of fetchable lands. So the, the, the maximum number of lands you can actually get into play is 11, technically speaking. That's all six dual lands, four wasteland, and a fiery islet. But generally, you, you're only going to get to... You, you can get to six lands pretty regularly off of your fetches, so... Oh yeah, I think I remember seeing. You know, I think it was Noah Walker that played uh, a Jace the Mind Sculptor in the sideboard of his rug deck, and that was because you have more mana generally. Yeah, I also did that in the playoff. I think that's just a really smart angle. Uh, the the other thing to notice is all these rug lists now are sort of weak to rest in peace. So having a big planeswalker like that in a pasteboard game can be pretty valuable. It really is deceptive, but it reminds me of the Grixis Delver deck. Um, and the fact that you have more mana, so sideboard, you can run these big haymakers and kind of go over the top of each other. Do you have any thoughts on uh, Rug going forward? There's two upcoming tournaments. There's uh, SCG Syracuse this weekend, which I am planning on attending, and Grand Prix Atlanta the weekend after. Uh, both are legacy, and I will obviously consider Rug as a choice. I think it's a very strong deck. Um but there, there's obviously a lot of ways to build the deck, and I'm not saying that my version might be correct every single weekend. Or You have to do work. Oh, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I, I am I'm actually testing this on the side in, in case four-color control finally just I give up on it. But I've loved this current build of it because I like the tap-out. It's very much a tap-out deck, and I feel like Legacy is that right now. What about what about two Dreadhorde Arcanists? Have you ever did you ever want the third one? So I think this compared to say Grixis Delver, which usually plays more Arcanist, this is a, definitely a worst Arcanist deck because Arcanist plays really well with like Thoughtseize and Inquisition of Kozilek. Rug lacks lacks elements. If you wanted to build a better Rug deck for Arcanist, you'd play like Chain Lightning and stuff like that. I think. Um, but I do find it useful to have two Arcanists. Again, the idea of diminishing returns. The second Arcanist is a little bit worse than the first. Having two in play is not the worst sometimes because they do snowball pretty quickly, like cantrip into cantrip into cantrip into cantrip. Like you, You'll just find all of the cards you need eventually. Um, but I, I do believe two is the correct number for this specific version. In talking about this, how did you arrive at this deck? Because we are talking about preparing for a tournament and... This wasn't something you normally play, but I assume you put some preparation into it. That's a really complicated question, and I do have a lot of thoughts about it. What I like to do is to see what deck lists are performing the best over a reasonable time frame, and if more than one person is putting up results with it. So the, you've, you can notice a trend of one person, and only one person, doing well with a deck list say IRL. Um, the the Magic Online 5 thing is kind of complicated and wonky, so I'm not going to get into that yet. But especially IRL, or just if you run into a person in a league repeatedly and they seem to beat you every time, then maybe you'd take notice. The, the, the 5 thing we'll, we'll get to later, I suppose. 
I mean, it sounds like if for a second you were almost describing describing Chase Hansen. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't really like his deck. I respect that he can win with it. I cannot win with it, so I don't play it. Yeah, I'm playing a deck more like his deck than ever, and I kind of see the attraction, but I'm not quite deck fading yet. But um, uh, what steps do you uh, personally take to prepare for a tournament? Like, you've got Syracuse coming up. So, I will try to write out a list of all the decks I think are going to be heavily played based on psychology, based on metagame share, or a lot of other factors. In, in my opinion, especially IRL, I always think combo is severely underrepresented compared to Magic Online. I'm not really sure how to explain that, but there's almost... I, I won't say zero because there's still like Brian Cook and you know a few other Storm pilots, but there's a lot less Storm, a lot less Sneak and Joe, a lot less Reanimator IRL than on Magic Online. So I, I lower that number in comparison, and I think people do like to play their fair mid rangey blue or like Mavericky decks a little bit more than on Magic Online. So I I, I look at a list of deck lists I've been doing well, but I. I move the numbers around a little bit and sort of try to figure out what what deck I want to pursue first and then how I can adjust that deck to sort of address those concerns that I have. Yeah, I definitely I definitely agree with the combo comment as far as um I think there's people because combo decks more they lean towards opening hand decisions, mulligan versus keep versus actual play patterns through so I think a lot of times that's probably what pulls people away from certain decks. Um, you know, and I mean, I'm talking more like the reanimator, stuff like that. Uh, I mean, Storm has definitely a lot of play with, to it with cantrips and decisions, but the, you know, the internal decisions of reanimator are your opening seven. I could definitely see lowering combo numbers down because there's a lot of people that don't like to you know, only live off their top, their top seven cards versus hate and rather try to outplay their opponents. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of a weird psychological thing, I think. I think people like to be able to interact with their opponents' permanents pretty often. Um, there's always the temptation... I, I see a lot of people do this. They like to sideboard too many answers in their combo decks for similar reasons, and I think that actually often leads to losing more often than not, because the combo decks are not designed to be able to answer every permanent, which is only a small subsection of permanents. I can definitely see that. So you write down your what you think is the best part of the metagame and what you're going to most likely face. And this is, is this like the winner's circle is what you're talking about? I don't do anything as um, convoluted as what Bob does. I just, I sort of have an internal idea of what it's like after looking at deck lists by going to websites like, MTG Goldfish, MTG Top 8, and the like. Um, one thing you have to be careful about Goldfish is that its metagame percentage is not really correct because it sort of treats all of the 5-0s equally, which is not really a correct thing to do because of how the 5-0 deck lists are cherry-picked. What about, you know, a big thing for me that I wanted to bring up was uh, health habits. Because I think a lot of prep is just the data acquisition like you're talking about. But what about health habits? Because I firmly believe in sleep and proper eating and like I bring snacks and water. Yeah, I actually noticed that. Um, 
I tend to force myself to drink enough water to have to use the restroom like every two rounds or so. Uh, if you do that, you can basically never get dehydrated. Obviously, it could still happen. It still happened to me at Vegas, but that's like an extreme example because the weather was so bad. Um, but if you drink enough water that you have to use the restroom every two rounds, I think you're doing it pretty well. I remember playing my first tournament years ago. Uh, forever ago, I can't even remember. And it was just like I remember not drinking water because I was in the rush and I was playing a turtle control deck. And I think four rounds in, I didn't counterspell a spell and I had a counterspell in my hand. And I just remember my head was bothering me and I was focused on that. I lost my complete con- like concentration and died. It was basically because I just hadn't drank water in four rounds. I mean, that, that can obviously happen. Um, but it. it, it and the weird thing is, I think water can sort of be a replacement for food, even though it shouldn't directly be. It can trick your stomach into thinking it's full when it, if you don't have time to eat anything. And, I, and sleep. I remember there was one tournament we um, we had we had basically we had drove and we got there at the last we we got there at the last second, but we had you know we had basically only budgeted like six hours sleep in this whole time. And that wrecked me through decision-making all day. And I was like, I, I almost felt like I just wasted my time, the money and everything going. And I should just stay home and slept. Um, so. a, a weird thing about that, an old coach, fencing coach of mine told me that they thought not the night before was the most important, but the night before the night before was more important. I don't remember why precisely, but I think... They said that they believed it was more important. The problem is magic tournaments are two days, two day events. So I think both of those nights are equally important, really. I definitely understand. There, there is an allure, especially at one of the magic events, to stay out with your when you're day two because you're like partying and you're happy that you're day two, and that kind of traps you a little bit. I remember, um, I think it was GP Columbus at day two. And my buddies and like they, a couple of them didn't, a couple did, and they were like, "Let's go out to the bar and everything else." And I went back to the hotel room and went to sleep. And they're like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "Man, I'm I'm here tomorrow. Like, why would I not do this?" So, and I, and I can understand there's there's pros and cons. Um, a big a big part of like this whole thing is once you have the data, data, you start testing your different decks. Um, so. In my opinion, especially in this modern era of where a lot of the decks are sort of close in power level, you should really try to pick one that you think you'll like and play it a bunch at first to at least see if you enjoy playing it slash, you know, like playing it slash understand it. That would be more the practice aspect. Once you decide you like a deck then I think you should try to test specific matchups you're worried about. Maybe matchups you don't feel like you quite understand the nuances of, or sideboarding decisions, or even just, you know, maybe th- there's a matchup you've literally never played in your life, you know, that that you think will pop up. Uh, the, the reason to do all this, especially with someone you can trust and know, um... Especially in IRL, IRL play, if you do this with your friend, you can see what's happening in the match 
very carefully. You can look at people's hands, you know, to maybe discuss it afterwards. Whereas I find a lot of the time when you play a league, it's not really easy to get all of the data or information you want or even need because you don't know your opponent's decision process. You don't know how they sideboarded. You really just don't have all of the information. Yeah. I mean, for me, like, to expand upon that, like, a big thing is, like, when you play a league or, like, you play your FNM, wherever, your opponents will make blatant mistakes that other opponents aren't going to make. And it kind of skews the, the fact that you think your deck's better than it actually is. Um, especially if you look at opening hands and they've just re, they've misevaluated the entire matchup. But if you're playing with someone you trust and, you know, you can talk it over and, and kind of help, you know, you're not going to always play it against an optimum player, but it's, I think it's always better to have, to be prepared for the optimum player. You don't have to be prepared for the bad player. Right. I, I think it's better to underestimate how much you're going to win rather than overestimate, basically, what you're saying. Um, there's also one other subtle point to what I just said, which is I don't believe in just playing one side of the matchup, even if it's the deck you want to play. I think there's actually a ton of value in switching. And the reason to do that is to learn the pressure points from the other side, what what matters for them when you're in their driver's seat. Yeah, I as a... Control specialist for years, I've always played all the decks. And people have like always wondered about it. And for me, it was I like to find out what the other deck's fundamental turn is and where's my what what turn is my breaking point? What turn can I, you know, do I what turn can I afford to let go by, you know, before I have to stabilize? Because I feel like if you know that you're much more comfortable when you're across the deck. Right, but I, I, I was kind of making the point that I think it's less about turns, more about just overall play patterns or like cards that matter or weird interactions that come up. Um, I remember the year that Ramal won Worlds with Psychotog, they just figure out that you just never counted the card draw in the mirror. That was just such a new idea at the time, but they, they literally broke it. So, like, you can only discover those sorts of things if you test with people and try different things and notice that that tends to work out more. No, I definitely agree with that. When I I meant the turn, I actually wasn't, I meant the actual, like, what, what, where is the breaking point of a deck versus not, I guess. So, Um, and I do, I really do uh, believe in switching, switching roles a lot when you're doing your practice. Just because I think it keeps you fresh when it, if you play the same deck over and over, you kind of get numb and you see, you know, you don't actually test new play patterns or new ways to play your cards because you've been playing them too much, you know, where you switch up and you get a break and you see other sides, you might, you might realize, hey, I can wait on this card or I, you know, the first time I ever saw an Aether Vial activated and nothing brought, you know, nothing was put in. But it made me brainstorm. I was like, "Oh, that was that was actually really smart." Yeah, I think uh, Red Soul does that a lot, and there are a few other people who learn from him to do that. But it it's not something that's intuitively obvious until the first time you see it. And then you know, you you uh, with testing or practicing, you know, I know you stream a lot, and you were actually testing the uh, whatever the Mystic Forge combo deck the other night, and I think you ran two leagues back to back. And uh, that was, you know, that's something that I don't think people actually do as much as, you know, 
you're a streamer and you have a you have a better chance of doing this and you do it for an entertaining value but at the same time it's helping you i mean you were seeing lines with that deck probably what two games in that you didn't see or didn't even know exist yeah it's it's weird for me because i think i have a basic i I have a pretty good ability to estimate what a deck should be able to do based on looking at the deck list just by trying to figure out all right if i draw this opening hand like on paper what can it do what are what are its goals how do you win with the deck and the the thing about that deck is the winning board state always looks the same it, it, you have card in play and your opponent has died somehow so if if you understand that it i think it's easier to reverse engineer lines if you realize that that's the plan than if you have no idea what a winning board seat looks like. Yeah, and like what we were saying before, if you face that deck, you know, in the future, you know that Karn's the quintessential card, right? Yep, it, it's, it's the only one condition, literally speaking. Yeah, uh, and, you know, it was kind of funny how we were joking, and I think I joked at the beginning, like, what about the mirror match? And that's how you ended your second. Yeah, uh, that, that, that mirror is not really... I mean, it's very clear what matters the most. It is carning your opponent because then none of their cards do anything really except yeah. your opposing cards. Uh, no rod on no rod actions. Yeah, it, it seems really unpleasant, actually. <laughs> so you get testing, you get practicing, and then you know you practice with you know someone that you can actually see the matchups. Uh, what about what are your thoughts on you know? Playing the best deck versus playing the deck you really like to play. All right, so I've I have a ton of thoughts on this. The problem with saying playing the best deck is the best deck is not the same for everyone, and I sort of alluded to that earlier, where you should pick a deck that you feel comfortable with, because I think it's much better to play a slightly worse deck at ninety five percent than it is to play the so called best deck at seventy percent you're more likely to just be comfortable with it and to, frankly, in Legacy, there are a ton of decks that, you know, you may have only seen once or twice. It might be hard to come up with a strategy versus that deck with a deck that you're less comfortable with than, say, like, a deck that you basically know in and out and you're like, oh, this should be my plan. And when my opponent goes like, or go the Enchantress, this should be my plan. Yeah, I definitely, um, it's actually funny you say that. I remember playing at uh, New, GP New Jersey 2014, and I played against Enchantress. And I was playing Miracles. I wasn't even exactly sure what my game plan was, because the deck had been around for a while, but it was almost a meme. But I, if I would have been playing Stoneblade, like I did the next day because I lost my first day, I would have been in trouble, but as miracles, I was just like, all right, I need to get some uh, EEs on one. I need to get this going. I need to find these cards, get Terminus to, if, if one of the Hexproof enchantment creatures are on the board, and I just do this. And that's what, you know, I basically took them out only because I was playing miracles at the time, which was blue-white control for me. And, you know, I mean, I think it goes back to back. I mean, I know, I know certain decks, um, I know certain decks' power level can carry you. But I do feel like at a long tournament, if it's not something you know or really, you know, cared, it's not your wheelhouse. I think you can get dragged down by it. But back to the first point, I think this is why it's so important at the beginning 
to pick a deck that's like within the top five decks to become comfortable with at the beginning of the process. Because if it's within the top five decks, you are pretty sure it's good enough on power level. Oh yeah, I mean, I definitely, I definitely think that there is a trap in Legacy with with certain decks that people think, you know, that Belchers, you know, I I know that even a couple of times Belcher has done well even in the Star City circuit, but it's not a consistent deck. You know, it's powerful, but the consistency is not quite there. Um, the the MTGO five O's help people pick out a lot, but I mean. We talked about it for a brief second. The cherry picking of uh, only so many cards can share really, I think, hurt the data. Yes. Yeah, so it's what I would call a very selective sample because it automatically weeds out, you know, however many copies of a deck. So it, suppose Rug is the most popular deck, which you can see from the playoff data that it was extremely popular and it did extremely well. For all of that data, if those were all five O's, you would only see one copy of it. So it's like cut by like a factor of thirteen or whatever. Oh, definitely. I definitely think, and I mean, especially since it gives like you know credence for certain decks to look a much better than they actually are. You know, there's a what's the one blade deck? There's some blade deck with weathered wayfinder. And I, I just can't even understand it. Like, I think I, you automatically get a pass because you have that card and no one else is going to have your card. So you're going to make it to the 5 as long as you get there once. Yeah, I believe the algorithms, if it differs by more than 10 cards. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really strange metric. to the, When that was first announced, I took kind of issue with it and sort of like, it's like, well, why, why are we doing this? And I, th- I think the answer is they're doing that because they actually don't want metagames to be solved so quickly is the reality of behind it. But the, the internet is so good at iterating processes that kind of feel like that it, it didn't really do much except maybe slow it down by like a few days at most. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's, and it's a silly thing. Like I think uh, when they first showed the, the first batch of modern decks after the Stoneforge mystic uh, was unbanned, there was, all these burn decks, and they, I couldn't believe they found that many burn decks with 10 cards apart. Yeah, there were also like 50 plus Stoneforge decks or something. Jerry said it was like some absurd number. Yes, yes, it was very absurd. Well, they basically, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the, the thing about Stoneforge is it, it obviously it's really easy to put it in all sorts of white decks and modern, like. You literally just have to be a white deck, and you can just put four Stanford or Batter Skull and your favorite sword in, right? Yes, yes. I mean, that's what I joked. I mean, it was like every every deck. I mean, there's some decks that just splash the white, like Affinity, right? Uh, yeah, I'm not particularly fond of that because the best equipment to find Affinity is actually cranial plating. Well, no, I, I definitely agree with that. But I'm saying, like, a, a colorless deck in theory could splash the white. You know, not even have that the planes in the deck and just add it. Yeah, well, White Drazi, I think, is a better example of that. Yeah, no, definitely it's true. I just, I was uh, I was trying to go with a deck that didn't play White before, like where the White Drazi deck actually had the White before. Like, I was thinking that the card is so innocuous to just throw one planes in and or that guy and you're great. I think the the 5-0 thing is, it, it's just a good place to get ideas. You shouldn't take it as gospel or whatever. Is the takeaway here? Yeah, I find a lot of like, you know, you find flex cards, you know. You know yeah, uh, I, I agree. Or maybe a slightly different approach 
that other people don't take and you're like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe we should try that and see how it works. What about uh, sideboard maps? I know a lot of people uh, think that they're really thinking outside of the box to get the perfect 75. So there's an underlying assumption for that, which is you've perfectly predicted your metagame. And I'm going to, I'm going to be frank. I think that is essentially impossible so it's okay to have not a perfect sideboard. You should just have a sideboard where you understand what the purpose of the cards in your sideboard is for and not worry about trying to optimize some perfection because the the, the real problem is you're going to misspecify your predicted metagame no matter what, right? Like you, you cannot predict what every other person in the tournament is going to do because that's just literally an impossible problem. I agree. I don't think it's possible to anticipate your metagame in any way. Like, as far as your, your 15 rounds, you're not going to be able to try to guess the 15 players. Right. So th- this is why I prioritize cards that are, well, especially in a rug deck, cards that are flexible and powerful. Like, in a perfect example of a card like that is Nullrod. It doesn't seem flexible or powerful, but then you look at its applications. Answers Aether Vial. Answers Lion's Eye Diamond slash Lotus Petal. Answers, say, I don't know, Walking Ballista. You know, there's just a lot of weird applications that you wouldn't think of for the card, but it turns out to be a lot more flexible than it looks on first blush, right? Well, I'm going to have to say it. It actually does nothing. Fine. Fine. <laughs> All right. I had that one coming. I mean, I didn't want to go there, but it was it was way too easy. I, I, I sort of prioritize your cards to have a purpose. And if that purpose happens to work in a matchup where you didn't expect it to work, say you get paired versus like Belcher, and one of your best cards is actually Null Rod, so be it. Decide in your Null Rod. That, no, that's I, great. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, the fact that the card can come in against Storm, DNC, some Blade decks, some of the post decks. It's out of nowhere. It's just like, you know, it's slapping them. And it's, this is one, one card that's actually not hard on your mana at all. Like, it's the most flexible thing because your mana. So the, the, the encouragement there is to try to find flexible, powerful sideboard cards. And there, there's actually plenty of those in Legacy. I think the card pool is so huge that if you're having an issue, you can probably solve it in some way. Uh, the the difference is colorless decks cannot really beat Nullrod. There's actually no good answer. I, I've looked a lot. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's really surprising because the last couple of years, Wizards has printed a lot of flexible charm-like effects in cards, and it's really surprised me we haven't received the colorless answer to artifacts. So I, I actually take that back. There is exactly one. It's Blast Zone. Yeah, Blast Zone. Yeah, I, I I was actually remembering that because some some of the vintage shop decks started playing Blast Zone in response to Nullrod. No, I mean, it's definitely one of those things that... Uh, but, I mean, if you really think about, like, the last couple of years, we've received so many cards that are basic, basic charms or all-encompassing effects. You know, Assassin's Trophy is crazy. So, I don't know if you actually remember this, but a few years ago... The Watsi R&D design philosophy was actually completely opposite. They didn't print that many universal answers in sets. Yes. So we're actually starting to see the effects of the shift in design philosophy now, which I think is sort of interesting. Trophy is an example of that, you know. I thought we'd never get another Vindicate, right? Like, that was like, 
that was done. Vindicate was the best thing ever. And then since then, Vindicate looks antiquated. Yeah, I mean, not, trophies like Vindicate, I mean, obviously them getting basically on South Street, but it, they, they definitely swung back on the pendulum there. Oh, yeah. I mean, Culligan's Command, uh, there's just so many of the cards that are basic, so flexible that they can be main deck. They're main deck hate cards. Um, what about sideboard guides? So we, we we got your thoughts on sideboard maps. How do you feel about sideboard guides? I have a lot of thoughts on this. The, the thing about sideboard guides is they generally assume your opponent has a, like a set sideboard and a set way to sideboard as well. So that's kind of dangerous. Um, if you know precisely what your opponent's going to do, then following a guide is, you know, pretty safe. But I, I think just following a guide, if you, what's the correct way to put it? If you follow a guide and you're really confident about your sideboarding accounts for how they're going to sideboard, then it's good. You might want to allow a little bit more flexibility based on certain cards you've seen in game one to predict a slightly different sideboard and adjust your sideboarding in that similar fashion. I'll give a quick example. White Blue Miracles. If you see Prismatic Vista, what does that tell you in game one? It probably means they have no Pyroblast, right? Yep. So you shouldn't side in your Blue Elemental Blast or Hydro Blast or whatever in that vein. However, if they show you Arid Mesa, that tells you a lot more information, right? Oh, yeah. So your sideboarding should be based a lot more on information and cues that you pick up in game one. I'm going to give another quick example from the now-banned Hogak deck in Modern. I've played Hogak in a bunch of events before it got banned, and one thing I would do is look at how many cards my opponent was sideboarding, because a lot of them did not shuffle their entire sideboard in. If it was like four cards, I'm like, all right, those are ley lines. I'm not going to overboard, except I'll side in like four trophies for four ley lines, and stuff like that. You can derive a lot more information from your opponent's sideboarding based on game one cues and how many cards they're siding in, then I think a lot more people can realize it. That, that sort of information can sort of help you predict what they're going to sideboard as well and adjust accordingly. So, Oh, I definitely agree. I'm, I've never been a fan of sideboard guides for myself, just because I've never really, I never think I can predict. It's kind of like what you said with sideboard maps. You have to predict exactly what your opponents are going to do and what they're going to be playing in a sideboard. And so, like, using a guide, you know, you're, you're staying... And also, I guess, the level of the player. Your opponents have to be on the same exact level that the guides are in. And every time I play Legacy, I run into people that are way higher than me on a level or way lower. And, you know, just to guess a guide is just not... You know, I, I think it's almost a waste of time where if you grab Theory... And you've got your theory down, and you build a very well-rounded sideboard. Then you actually can get a better advantage in your game. Yeah. So the the major tournament that actually taught me this was I remember Sam Black basically won nationals with Green Black Elves once, and he accidentally sided in Sudden Spoiling versus Chion's Fairies, and then once he did that, he actually realized the card wasn't so bad in the matchup. 
at previous, despite previous experience as to what he thought, because he noticed that he could just blow out like misfine clicks and whatever with it, just randomly. So he just left them in, and he won nationals in the finals based on a card that no one thought was good in the matchup, but it turned out to be actually okay. So that's actually a good good example of you know maybe your previous sideboard guide doesn't account for different factors actually maybe making a card better than than it looks. Oh, I mean, I definitely I think um, a point for legacy is the fact that a lot of tra- traditional thought process. And when cyborg guys were built at, oh, fair decks, side your forces out, fair decks, side your forces out. But we've gotten to the point with these powerful cards that have come in the last couple of years that that's not even a correct thought process anymore. It's the side of your forces out in the fair matchups because they're not really fair decks. Yeah, I, I sort of agree with that. I think the haymakers have gotten too good that you should be willing to do for one yourself to answer a haymaker. Right. And I, I mean, the big thing for me is like if you look at it, if you use just your traditional sideboard guides to tell you to do this, you know, you're losing out, you're losing these games where uh, I think it was like GP Louisville for me. I got killed four game, four matches straight in a row by Gideon, Allied Zendikar. And in fact, like the last two rounds, I had left my forces in because I just kept losing to it. I was playing Stoneblade or Miracle Mirrors. The entire time. Um, one, one thing I will say about sideboard guides is they're actually pretty valuable at the beginning of the testing process when you don't have an idea of how to approach matchups in post-board games because it can give you an idea. The most useful sideboard guides I've actually found are the ones that tell you what the person in mind who wrote the sideboard guide views the game as playing out as. I noticed Canister did that for a lot of his sideboard guides. He'll tell you what he expects to happen in a post-war game of, say, Hogak versus whatever, and that's actually just way more helpful than, you know, minus whatever, plus whatever. I think that part of the sideboard guide is super valuable, and I, I'm i willing to pay money for that. Oh, I definitely agree. I, I love when someone gives you the end game plan as opposed to, you know, you, you can play a match several times, and if you're both playing it wrong, you've actually skewed all of like the matchup in your head and having someone a pro or someone who's actually played the matchup enough times to be considered an expert or pro detail you out. This is actually what happens will prepare you in a better place. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, what, what about like general habits uh, before a tournament? You know, do, do you have any kind of rituals or habits before pre-tournament uh not really i don't really believe in that stuff (laughs) as a statistician so i just don't i i mean i will try to you know be in a relatively good state of mind by like following what i normally do but i'm not superstitious or anything about it i just try to get to a similar mental state well i guess um when i said rituals I, i i was speaking more of like you know uh for me, like I like to, you know, a lot of people like to wait till the day, and I'm like, oh no, I if I'm going to a tournament, I'm, I'm going. So I go ahead and pre-register. Um, I like to scope where the site is before a little bit. I don't like to get there at the last minute, you know. And, and I feel like it's, you know, even though it's adulting, I don't think a lot of people sometimes do that. Uh, yeah, did anything to reduce stress before the day of? I'll, I'll do. 
pre-register, make sure my accommodations are lined up, everything like that. Yes, I, I agree with all of that. Yeah, um, you know, and then like, I think like, you know, that leads into like a lot of people sometimes have pre-game jitters. And I sometimes think it's because like, like built up stress getting to the point that when they sit down, it kind of crashes into them. Uh, what are your thoughts on pregame jitters? Well, I kind of think they're a pretty normal part of the human condition. It's like normal to be nervous when you play your first match or whatever. I think what can often help is playing a few games right before the tournament starts, just like one or two, just as a warm-up. Um, but it, it's a part of the game. Like, I mean, you can't just write it off. And it's like, I, I think even some of the top level professionals, they still have the jitters sometimes. It's impossible to eradicate. So wouldn't worry about it. Just maybe play a few games, take a deep breath and, you know, just enjoy it. It's still a game. Yeah. I'm a huge football fan and Sunday night, Sunday night, Tom Brady's first pass looked like a wounded duck. Guy's 42 years old Been throwing a football for a long time. And he threw a wounded duck. He's he's a little bit old. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But he's throwing a football Many times it was a it was this wounded duck flight of the air, but yeah, I could definitely see being okay with it. Um, so, do you like? Uh, there's a lot of people that you know believe try to stay positive, keep your health healthy mindset, especially when variance takes over, because it's very easy to stay positive when you're winning and you're doing well. But when you know certain things happen, I you know try to avoid the tilt factor. I guess. Um, so I I think the best way to account for all of this is to remind yourself that you're not playing chess. So, you know, crazy things can happen. And the other thing is, you know, losing is part of the game. I mean, if, if it happens, that sucks, but as long as you're not dead in the tournament, you can always still win the tournament. Right. I remember there was a pro tour where Reed was literally one and four and back in this pro tour, four, four still made day two. So Reed was just like, you know what? I'm going to pick myself up by my bootstraps, just play one match at a time. He ended the tournament 12-4. and I think that's really impressive because I think so many people wouldn't be able to do that, have the, you know, uh, wherewithal to just say, okay, let's just take it one match at a time. I'm still not dead in the tournament. Just let me play out all my realms. Going from 1-4 to and 12-4 and at a PT, I think it's even more impressive than, you know, Starting, you know, eight zero and then finishing twelve four. Obviously, I think it's just so much harder. Right. Well, it's like you know, even you know, I think it might be actually harder to go one and four to twelve four than it is to go to eight zero. It's really easy to stay on top of your game when you're winning, but coming back. I mean, it's so hard, especially if it's variance. You know, the you know, when you draw seven lands in a row. You know, and it's happened, you know, you know, there's, you know, people complain about everything. And, you know, like, I understand I've been there. I started with the, you know, seven amazing cards, two, two lands, five great spells, and then never drew another spell the rest of the game. And it's, it's demoralizing, but I don't think you should let it drag yourself down. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is hard to shake it off by those points, but you, you do need to remind yourself that you're not playing chess. Because if you were playing chess, the better player would always win. And frankly, that's that's kind of not really why we play this game, you know? <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be playing chess. I agree. I, I'm, as a longtime chess player, I firmly believe... I, I actually don't like chess because of the lack of variance. 
Oh yeah, they, it's really boring when you play against the same person over and over, and you know who's going to win like ninety nine percent of the time, barring some like big blunder. Right. I, I do think that you know magic has that that lure of you know the fact that you you know you could top deck a literal miracle. There is a mechanic miracle that is played off of it, and it's just like oh, I just you know, somehow I can I'm back in the game. So you know, I, it's one of the uh, greatest games uh, around. There's some uh, uh, there's some great articles that you wrote in the past. I, I've never told you in person. Or, at all, but I I started following you when you wrote for Gathering Magic because uh, I was a big legacy content person back in the day, and I think it was 2012, according to the links in the show notes, uh, and you were writing about legacy, and I was like, who's this guy? But you wrote some great articles about legacy metagame and stuff like that, and you even had some decent reasoning, and it's uh, funny that you talk about playing with... Uh, someone in real life that you know, because in one of the articles, you're talking about testing a matchup with Reduke, Goblins versus Miracles. That was a long time ago. We don't get to do those anymore. Oh, well, I mean, but it was still great. Like, there was a, you know, that was your test, that was your testing process back then even, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I sort of still do the same thing, not with Reed in, anymore, unfortunately, but, um, I do remember those articles, and I do remember the Goblins tech very well from back then. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people remember you from the Lands deck, C-Tech, but I remember from your article series that you actually played other decks, uh, and you were like, I think, did you have a Stoneblade deck you were big on for a while? Yeah, I went, there was an Invitational where I went 7-1. Funny story about that Invitational was, I was 7-0, then I sat down for my 8th match, I'm like, wait, my deck's not in my bag? Then I went up to the front, you know, stage, and they had my deck, fortunately. It was Esper Stoneblade, so that was, like, a really expensive deck back then. Oh, it's really expensive now. At the price oh, of yeah, I, I can't imagine losing that deck now. I'm a little bit more careful about that stuff now, but back then it was already scary. And, I, you know, losing a deck like that is not good. Oh, no. I mean, I remember when Underground Seas hit $100, and I thought that was ridiculous, and now I laugh. Like, and then like, now, now you're like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, Screw stocks. Yeah. You should just buy magic cards and sit on them forever, right? Um, I mean, that that's actually what's really happening in a lot of ways. But, you know, that's a, kind of a conspiracy theory later. But <laughs> uh, is there anything else you'd like to close out on about testing for a tournament? Any random thoughts or anything you'd like to give our listeners? Yeah, I, I just think... Play RL with your friends, you know, to switch sides, and don't just record the numbers. I think that is one of the worst things you can do. You should write down what you think mattered in the matchup from both of your sides. Just the numbers are not really useful, saying you're like 5-5 five and five or whatever. So the, if two decks are 50-50 versus each other, the likelihood that you actually see a 7-3 result is actually pretty high, frankly speaking. I could run the actual numbers, but it's not it's not that low. So the the thing is don't don't take the numbers for that much. Just play it and see how you feel about the matchup and what mattered. Oh I definitely I definitely concur with that. I mean the big thing that you mentioned that I and I've read a lot of articles on tournament prep and everything else, because I'm always trying to see what other people do to kind of expand upon it. But um not don't write the numbers down is something that 
that I've seen a lot of, but write down what actually happened is not something you see a lot of. And that's a, that's a really good point. You know, find out, you're finding out basically what mattered and what didn't in that data. Oh, and one, one related thing to that, sideboard games are really important. They're almost twice as important because in the scenarios where you lose game one but win game two, that you, a lot of the time you're going to play basically universally more sideboarded games than game ones. Yes, that's how the math definitely works. You, you always have only one pre-boarded games. So I definitely, I definitely always been a big advocate of sideboarding matters more. A lot of people like to test game one decks, and I, I think like game one decks are. First of all, I think not even just the math involved if you play more post board but the fact that you the fact that game one decks you know are designed for open fields you know and when you your sideboard is when you're honing your deck so i've always been a big proponent of playing post board we do have some patreon shout outs since we just started our patreon we we've already received some wonderful donations and some generous people uh so i want to give some shout outs to brendan mcgrail Dylan Hovey, Lee Parker, Levi W, Reinhardt Gao, Gao, I'm so bad at that, Robert Willis, Wilson, Steve Sizemore, and Ryan Freeberger. Uh, we thank you very much for your donations, uh, and you should be receiving Discord invitations and your associated perks. Uh, we're going to be closing this episode out soon. I'm going to give some social uh, media links in the show notes. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RacelandIM. You can find Lawrence at Lawrence Harmon. Uh, Kwame, our wonderful audio engineer, who's going to make us sound way better than we actually are, at uh, Trip Tripodon Gun, T R I P O D G U N N. Tripodon. Oh, yep, tripod gun. And you can find Thirst for Knowledge Cast at Thirst for Cast. And where we can where can we find you, Mr. You? Uh, I'm on Twitter at JKYU06. And I have a Twitch channel and a YouTube channel. They're both Jarvis U. All right. Well, I appreciate you very much for coming in tonight and filling us in on your prep. And uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be on.